Support for Full Circle comes from Oak Bay Bikes. Serving cyclists in Victoria for over 80 years, Oak Bay Bikes has two locations and free pickup drop-off service. They are there wherever you need them. Find Oak Bay Bikes online at oakbaybikes.com. You're listening to Full Circle. I'm your host, Jordan Barron. In this series, we feature stories from the greater Victoria area that speak to what really matters to Vancouver Islanders. In your opinion, who does the city belong to? This is a conversation that has been going on in Victoria for quite some time. I think I dream that it caters to everyone, but in many ways I think it caters to people who have uh, and not people who have not. Uh, It caters to people who are visiting, uh, maybe not so much people who stay. I think it caters to middle to upper class white people. I think that in 2017 we have a mayor that is actively gentrifying the city. True, there are citizens from all walks of life living within its borders. But as the price of homes rise and the redevelopment of areas in the city begin to push certain demographics out, the question of whether or not gentrification is good for Victoria emerges. Gentrification, which is when a community or district is renovated or refreshed to conform to the wants and needs of middle-class citizens, is a hot-button topic on the tongues of many in the downtown core. Some believe that gentrification is good for Victoria, as new business and middle-class niceties bring in revenue from high-income earners looking to live in a cool city, and from tourists looking for a sample of authentic Victoria living. If you're asking me honestly, I think that we should cater to people who give money to the city, you know? It might be tourists or whatever, just people that can, like, pay for things in the city. And, like, anybody can get money from those people. I mean, they have it, right? So just, like, open up a good restaurant or something. Others argue that gentrification drives up living costs, and those who have resided in gentrified neighborhoods since before the change are forced to move out of the area. An example of this is like it's difficult for people who are on social assistance to find housing. So, who should matter more in this argument? Should the displacement of longtime residents cause a stir, or should the city welcome the surge of spending by newcomers and outsiders with disposable income? Who exactly does the city belong to? In this episode, we explore stories of gentrification in Victoria. We explore regulations proposed by the city that caused a stir in the housing market, and we investigate how the city pushes out those deemed unworthy of using public spaces. From CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria, I'm your host, Jordan Barron. This is Full Circle. Stay tuned. First up, the Garden City, as it is so aptly nicknamed, boasts many green spaces and open areas that are said to be available by any member of the public. According to Stephen Harrison, a blogger who writes, as needs more spikes, these spaces are laden with what is known as defensive architecture. He explains that seemingly aesthetic choices in design, like a planter or a specific type of bench, can actually be a way to keep specific undesirable parts of the population from using a space that they once did all the while, going unnoticed by people who have been deemed worthy of being there. CFUV correspondent Miles takes a tour of downtown Victoria to reveal the defensive architecture with Stephen in This City Needs More Spikes. Hi, 
Have you ever noticed the raised armrests in between seats on city benches downtown? Have you been wondering why a business would add a spiky fence onto a window ledge or flower bed? Maybe you've seen a tree erected in the place of a once open spot where people used to sit or rest. These subtle changes in the downtown Victoria core are examples of defensive architecture, a design trend where public spaces are altered to discourage pedestrians from using that space in ways unintended by the owner. This type of architecture has been said to be used to keep homeless and poor citizens from accessing public areas that are deemed to be only for the more privileged Victorian. Early in the year, local Victoria writer Stephen Harrison created Needs More Spikes, a blog dedicated to revealing the ways in which Victoria's public spaces are becoming less and less available for citizens, especially the poor and homeless. In his blog, Stephen points out area after area that have been said to be usable by all walks of life, but are built and maintained for the financially privileged. To find out more about how these spaces are created and why, I met with Stephen one morning for a walkabout in the downtown core. Stephen, tell me about your background and what Needs More Spikes is all about. Sure. So my background, I've done a lot of work in just research and writing in my professional life. And I started a blog called NeedsMoreSpikes.com in January of this year. It's focusing on issues surrounding defensive architecture in Victoria. Defensive architecture being anything in the built environment designed to displace people or limit people's use of a space. So things are one of the most common examples being armrests on a bench that aren't really about being armrests, they're about making sure people can't sleep there. We started our tour across from Victoria's courthouse. We sat on a bench facing a brand new playground where a young family was taking some time to enjoy the sunshine. Stephen has written extensively about this playground and what used to be in its place in his blog. So the Victoria Courthouse property was the site of Victoria's tenth city for was it a bit over a year? I don't remember exactly. Uh, and the end results, what we have now, is a playground here. And so that was designed uh, implicitly, if not explicitly, to displace homeless people from using this space again. So that we have some signs saying no overnight use of this space, for example. The city has a bylaw in the books, which doesn't apply to provincial land, but it was cited in reference to this playground, which says that you can't camp uh, in or near a playground. So while the playground is very nice and it's being well used, and I'm glad for that and happy to see that. Uh, I was part of a project to displace people from using the space and satisfy the concerns of uh, other surrounding residents who did not want homeless people living in this space. You mentioned like sometimes it's implicit or these explicit uh, things put in place to deter people, but there are instances sometimes where in the bylaws or in the wording around some of these decisions, you wrote about this in one of your recent blog posts. Sometimes the terminology is very explicit, where it is talking about deterring vagrants or people who are putting up tents and stuff like that. Yeah, so we've seen a few examples of rights-of-way agreements signed by the city of Victoria with some developers. Uh, an example with some explicit language is at the Dockside Green property, just over in uh, Vic West, I guess, there. And as part of that agreement, it says that the developer or their agents, whatever that means, uh, can eject or bar entry to people who appear to be unconscious, who are setting up tents or erecting structures, other structures. So that I would take as being explicitly about homeless people. There's probably not a lot of other folks who are looking to erect tents at Dockside Green. Uh, I have had some correspondence with the city that says, or their response is that these agreements 
are not targeted at any one type of person to use their language, but if you look at research that's out there, loitering laws are or may be disproportionately enforced against homeless and poor people. It's often the case. So even if you have something in an agreement that just says no loitering, who is more likely to have the police or a bylaw officer approach them? Is it the white guy with the laptop or is it somebody who looks to be perhaps visibly poor or homeless? Dockside Green, a new space being developed in Victoria, has strict policies in place surrounding who can use it. As these new spaces with strict no-loitering bylaws are being constructed, they're forcing the public, specifically the poor or homeless, to move along and refrain from being a nuisance. So what about areas and establishments that were created to be a resource for the public? Surely they must be devoid of any defensive architecture. Stephen and I headed to Victoria Public Library's downtown branch. So we're here at the Greater Victoria Public Library downtown, and you wrote about this in a very recent blog post. What can you, what can you have to tell us about this space? I did. So the theme of my post is that people may think of libraries as a welcoming place where everybody can be, uh, and they're often used and well used by Victoria's homeless population. They provide a number of valuable services and things people would want access to. But if you go out in the courtyard of our downtown branch, you're met with a bunch of signs telling you you're very unwelcome to be here. So we're standing at the entrance here. There's three very large signs, private property, no loitering, no depositing of chattel goods, no skateboarding, no cycling, no camping, private property. This area is monitored by video surveillance. Also, please dismount, foot traffic only. Thank you. So not the most friendly space. Um, I think about 10 years ago, a man named David Johnston was protesting against the loitering signs and was banned from the courtyard for his troubles. Uh, eventually was allowed back to enter the library. Um, and if we went further to the courtyard, you'd see things like um, unsleepable benches, so with bars on them. Uh, there's some anti-skateboarding infrastructure right behind us here on some railings, so nobody can skateboard there. Uh, so I, I just thought it was an interesting, interesting contrast between the public space that we think of as the library and the uh, what's almost privatized space, although this courtyard is owned jointly, I believe, by the province and the city of Victoria. But it's made very clear what you are and aren't allowed to do in this space. That means no luck for anyone who would want to take sanctuary in the library. For the next spot on our tour, we headed over to 836 Yates Street. This wide parking lot sits across from the Johnson Street installment of the Portland Hotel Society, a housing project created for the displaced residents of Victoria's now defunct tent city and is owned by the Environmental Assessment Office. Skirting the area are several beds of sharp, jagged rocks surrounded by a pointed black fence. What used to be here? Uh, what used to be here was a row of bushes, um, just green greenery. Uh, so this is a bit of a covered walkway, or at least part of it in here, and homeless and poor folks uh, used to use this space, and I'm sure some continue to use this space. Uh, and the uh, ministry met with the Victoria Police Department uh, expressing safety concerns. I don't know what those concerns were. Certainly if anybody was threatened or hurt, that would be unacceptable. Uh, but the Victoria Police Department sent somebody down here and they wrote up a report for the Environmental Assessment Office suggesting they cut down the bushes. Done. Environmental Assessment Office slashed those bushes. Uh, the police also suggested maybe they wanted to install some rocks with concrete. They did that too. I guess that wasn't enough because the Environmental Assessment Office went a step further and has installed a black fence here to make sure nobody sits on at least one half of this planter. 
don't know what the plans are for the other half, or maybe they don't own it. I don't know. Um, but for now, we have a bunch of defensive architecture designed to discourage people from lingering in the space. And the bushes specifically were cut down because it, the police said it would allow for surveillance by the general public. So people were using the space, I think, in part because people without their own private space search for at least semi-private spaces. Uh, and that has been removed by the Victoria Police Department and the Environmental Assessment Office. From what Stephen has been telling me, it seems as though the defensive architecture in Victoria is perpetuated by not only one entity. To better explain that idea to me, he takes me to the Odeon Alley, just a block away from the Environmental Assessment Office. Yeah, so the Odeon Alley is, is a bit different in that it's owned jointly by, uh, depending where you are in the alley, so if you're on the north side of that alley linking Yates and Johnson, you're on Cineplex Entertainment's property. There's nothing to indicate that that's who owns the property, but when you're in that section, there's a dozen or more easily no loitering, no smoking, no this, no that signs. Uh, and if you're on the southwest end, it's owned by Concert Properties. Again, nothing to indicate there's a boundary there, but there are more no loitering, no skateboarding, maybe subject to arrest signs. If you're on the southeast, you're on the city of Victoria's land. Again, nothing to tell you that. No way, I would say, for your average member of the public to know whose property they're on or not on. Uh, but there's a number of pieces of defensive architecture installed on both sides of that alley, city and private. Uh, there's one of the most egregious examples of defensive architecture, most obvious examples, is at the north end of that alley where Cineflex Entertainment has just bricked up a planter that people used to sit on. Can't sit there anymore. Uh, there's some weird chairs, I believe, in the city's half, which don't face each other, don't seem to be designed to encourage anybody to stay in that space or use that space. There's a lot of anti-skateboarding infrastructure in there. Uh, and again, all those hostile signs telling you you might be arrested if you're doing the wrong thing. Walking back past the Portland Hotel Society and the Environmental Assessment Office, the topic of who this type of architecture benefits came up. So there's definitely a few examples of that. The idea here is that so the people who work here don't have to see the people who had been using this space or don't have to confront that. And I think there's something deeply troubling about the fact that it's the provincial government working with the police department to come up with these displacement solutions as opposed to, you know, throwing everything they can into housing and things, things of that nature. Uh, there's other examples I would say at uh, outside the London Drugs, just up, up the street here, Harris Green, uh, where you see a bunch of these metal bars on the ledges that are closest to the store, so I would guess where the customers would go. And uh, the ones in the parking lot not blocked off, I would guess, just a guess, maybe that's of less concern. They don't want customers to have to encounter and deal with poor and homeless people. I don't know, to protect their, <laughs> protect their bubble of privilege as they shop for their shreddies. Yeah, it's kind of a, it seems like a united project here, so that we're standing at somewhere where the provincial government has supported defensive architecture, which is directly supported by the police. Uh, the city, CRD, have examples of defensive architecture in Centennial Square. Uh, the city signs these agreements with the developers, encouraging either these either defensive architecture explicitly or just rules uh, limiting who can use that space. Uh, and then certainly developers complicit in that, or I guess maybe making these demands for these types of agreements. So it's it, yeah, it's coming at it from all levels, public and private, working together to what end, I suppose, to reduce visible homelessness, but not in the way of actually eliminating homelessness, moving it further away, which uh, comes at the expense of the safety of those who do live in homelessness. And you mentioned even the Downtown Victoria Business Association in one blog post where they were talking about making a space more appealing, I guess, 
Yeah, so I, I think uh, I found an old article where the DVBA was talking about the no loitering signage was contributing to making Victoria either a safer or more appealing place to be. Uh, DVBA also involved in some lighting projects. I've seen some of those lights. They can look very nice, but the undertone, or, and which actually I think is explicit in some of them, uh, is, is about safety, and safety means making it a place that homeless and poor folks are less likely to use. Like if you have lighting in a space, it's no longer as private a space. Maybe you're not going to be there. I think that's the hope, and then those people are displaced. Uh, so yeah, the DVBA definitely works on this type of stuff and thinks about this type of stuff and couched in terms of safety uh, and also involved in defensive architecture in Victoria. When you're walking downtown, take a look around to see what may be subtly moving you and others along. Does a fence block off once usable space? How comfortable is the bench you're sitting on while you wait for the bus? Once you learn about ways that your city is keeping you out of public spaces built for you and your community, maybe you'll want to write a blog post about it too. You can check out Stephen Harrison's blog online at needsmorespikes.com. We just finished listening to The City Needs More Spikes a piece created by members of CFUV's production team. Next up is a look into the trials and tribulations of short-term rentals in the city of Victoria. That's in a moment. Stay with us. Support for Full Circle comes from Oak Bay Bikes, serving cyclists in Victoria for over 80 years. Are you curious about e-bikes? Check out the Oak Bay Bikes Demo On Demand program. At Oak Bay Bikes, E is for everyone. For more information, visit Oak Bay Bikes in Victoria or on the West Shore, or online at oakbaybikes.com. From CFUV 101.9 FM, you're listening to Full Circle. I'm your host, Jordan Barron. Welcome back. In this episode, we are exploring all things gentrification in Victoria, how City Council is fighting against gentrification, and how it pushes the movement forward. In the past few years, many of those who own homes have been experimenting with the short-term and vacation rental game, as businesses like Airbnb and VRBO have been making it easier to rent out rooms to tourists and travelers for short amounts of time. According to the City of Victoria, this has been a piece of the puzzle in what has become a very difficult market for citizens to rent in. Some councillors argue that this city should put long-term renters' needs before those of vacationers, and to follow through with that argument, they went to work on new regulations for short-term rental suites. Of course, this caused a stir among interested Victorians, who showed up in droves to discuss the proposed regulations when they were announced at a public hearing. CFUV spoke to some of those individuals to get their opinion on who Victoria and its living accommodations should belong to. Coming up is Victoria versus Vacation Rentals. A public hearing at Victoria's City Council was called late in the summer of 2017. Concerned citizens trickled in one after another to eventually fill the chamber. The topic of interest for the evening the reason why an often quiet and mannerly process of lawmaking 
became one of heated conversation and an at times unruly crowd was that of the legality of the short-term and vacation rental, or STRs. What is a short-term rental? These types of accommodation are defined as ones where the tenant, vacationer, or other habitant rent the space for less than 30 days. These types of rentals have been gaining popularity among accommodation owners since the mid-2000s, when home sharing and vacation rental websites like Airbnb and VRBO were established. Since the appearance of short-term rentals on the Victoria market, vacancy rates for rental suites have been dropping, so much so that finding any housing, let alone affordable housing in Victoria, has proven a difficult task for those looking to live in the city. The city of Victoria has since claimed that one piece of the puzzle in the struggle to provide housing for its residents is the rise in short-term rentals. To combat the steady growth of short-term rentals and the decline of available long-term rentals in the city, Council began to make a plan of how to regulate short-term rentals in the city. Thank you and good evening. So this is a very brief presentation describing an amendment to the zoning regulation bylaw affecting zoning for short-term rentals in Victoria. The regulations proposed would mainly focus on two parts of what concerns the city about short-term rentals. The idea of suites and condos being bought specifically for STRs and the lack of regulation on STRs as a business. The regulations target these problems by permitting STRs only in primary residences or the place where someone usually lives, and by requiring the owner of the STR to maintain a business license. The regulations would also allow current short-term rentals in entire suites or condos to be grandfathered in, while disallowing the creation of any more short-term rentals in non-primary residences in the future. So it's staff's recommendation then that Council consider bylaw 17-084 following this public hearing. This set of regulations garnered the attention of many who own short-term rental suites, along with those who are in the rental market and those who have either found housing within the city or have been pushed out with a low vacancy rate. The opinions on the proposed regulations differed greatly as citizens voiced their opinions to council during the hearing. Some applauded the efforts to regulate short-term rentals for reasons of affordability and available accommodation. The cost of living in this part of the world is hard enough, but it is nearly impossible downtown. Short-term rentals may not be the only factor making it hard to find housing in Victoria, but they certainly make things harder. I have been looking daily on a dozen sites in Victoria for uh, rental accommodation. I'm employed, I'm not low income, I can afford the going rate, I can find nothing. And I gather there's a 0.5 vacancy rate. And I'm just wondering why am I, as a contributing member of this community, struggling to find housing? And I do feel that the amount of short-term rentals is affecting my ability to actually hold my job and not end up living in my van. And I'm facing, personally, the real, very real possibility that I could be living in a van. And I just think there's... Others pointed out that these regulations will hurt those who supplement their income with the short-term rentals they own or manage. This council isn't right-zoning our city. Uh, the proposed decision to rezone the downtown and remove transient zoning entirely isn't fixing a previous wrong. Uh, but broadly changing the flexibility and property use for current property owners, residents, developers, businesses, and future owners in this zone. 
This is a policy decision to address a perceived flaw in the marketplace and a political move to appear to be doing something meaningful to address the limited supply of rental housing. This is Nancy Payne, owner of Space Host, a short-term rental management company. She has actively spoken out against the proposed regulations during multiple stages of their making. We spoke with Nancy to learn more about how she predicts the regulations will affect those with short-term rental suites. Uh, I think it's uh, too heavy-handed what the measures that the city council is taking of actually downzoning the downtown core, meaning that they're taking away special zoning that was put in place for the majority of the downtown called transient zoning that allows this type of use. And their reason for doing that is, I think it's really they're scapegoating the short-term vacation rental industry as one of the factors contributing to the low vacancy rate and affordability in the city. Well, I think that it may be one piece of the puzzle, but the thing that I think is quite unusual is that the first piece of business that the city undertook was to go after people who were doing this in legitimately zoned areas. Like in residential areas, anyone who is managing a short-term rental is already contravening bylaws, but for the time being or in the past few years as as this um, market has really proliferated, the only time that the city has been enforcing that bylaw is typically if there's a neighbor that complains about the activity. So I, I think it's crazy that they started by going after the transient zoning and, you know, the people who are operating short-term rentals there um, were doing it legitimately. And I think there are many other factors that are at play that have contributed to that, the lack of affordable housing. And, and in part, some of it is, is policy of the city, like taking a long time to decide on rental properties, not incentivizing developers to build affordable rentals. Some argue the regulations being proposed for short-term rentals will actually hinder the affordability and availability of housing in the city. The proposed short-term rental bylaw favors property owners. Tenants are not permitted to rent out a room to offset their soaring rents, 12% higher than last year in Canada's fourth highest rental market. This is in a city where there are 3,400 empty dwelling units, almost 7% of the city's housing stock. Sharing is not caring. This is a myth to just Victoria E. Adams, convener of the Mile Zero Mirror, explains why she opposes these regulations. In this city, we have 59% of our households who are renters. Over half of all the buildings, residential buildings in the city, are for long-term rental purposes. If we turn over or convert our housing quarters into quasi-hotels for short-term use to visitors from out of town or cities, the purpose of doing that is to earn the maximum amount of revenue. And so those that are Uh, feeling the the pinch right now are long-term renters who, when an owner has another room available, it's far easier to put it on uh, Airbnb and more lucrative when they can be charging on average $158 a night here versus $40 a night that they would receive from uh, a long-term renter. Well, it would have been my firm opinion that the city not entertain the use of housing uh, for tourists. I would have liked to have seen uh, council say first and foremost, we want housing for those who live and work in our city. But it didn't say that. Consequently, one can only assume that those who live 
and work here, including uh, the tenants who at this point still represent the majority of households in the city, don't matter. And that what matters are the tourists who come to town and who live in property that is available for them only. So I, I really have to question the wisdom of people who say they are representing the majority interests of our city. If they were, then one would have to ask, what happened to the 59% who rent in this city? Why don't they count? Where do they fit in your model of um, making more housing available to tourists when we have m more of our uh, rental population who are being obliged to leave because their housing is being torn down, demolished, renovated, and they're being asked to move on. So what future do I see for short-term rentals? Well, I see this city being transformed into a playground for very affluent members of our society. And I think short-term rentals are part and parcel of that. After the citizens shared their voices, councillors chimed in on the matter. So I hope council can support uh, the bylaw that's in front of us. We need these units for housing. Uh, and we need to bring some proper regulation uh, to this industry, which is so far operated uh, outside of proper regulation. And we need to, I think, bring some order to a very disorderly situation that's causing a lot of concern to the people who've chosen uh, to live and make their homes uh, in downtown Victoria. I've been sitting at this table for some years. I've approved a lot of the buildings that are now contain condominiums, many of which are being used for Airbnbs, and I can tell you that during all those years, I thought I was approving places for people to live, not hotel rooms. Yes, there is a need for Airbnb. I'm sure a lot of the units that are now being used will continue to be used as short-term vacation rentals, but the fact is that short-term vacation rentals are a different use. Uh, I think one of the speakers said that if we think this is going to solve the housing crisis, it's not. And for those of you who come to the council table uh, quite often, there are many pieces of the puzzle that we're working on. So whether it is vacant condos where people aren't living in them and they're totally vacant, we're looking at things such as that. How do we address that? I know, although I'm not at the table, there's other uh, discussions that we've had on how we can make uh, affordability and how we can ensure that uh, there's housing for all. So it is one piece of the puzzle. I saying none, I will just add, uh, and apparently the uh, odd voice out here tonight, that uh, I agree with everything my colleagues have said, but I remain unconvinced that this very broad, heavy brush is the right way to achieve the goals that we've all set out. I think there is a bit more nuance required, and so I will not be supporting this this evening. And with that, they made their deliberation. And so I'll call the question. All those in favor? The vote included six councillors in favour and one opposed. And that matter is concluded. Were you surprised at council's deliberation? No, I, th I really thought that they'd already made the decision before that public hearing even happened. In fact, the first two meetings about it weren't really even advertised. And that was another thing that's quite crazy. You know, typically if, if a private citizen was trying to rezone a property, they need to go through a huge procedure to have that zoning changed, including notifying all stakeholders that are affected in the immediate surrounding areas. What's crazy about this change in zoning is that it affects so many people that they don't even need to really inform people and send it out by mail or have a, a you know, a big sign that says, here's what we're doing now. 
And now someone, let's say someone who has a, a parking lot in downtown Victoria that might want to build a hotel, because obviously we're dealing with a supply issue on that side too, right? For them to go and get the transient zoning to build a hotel will be a process that'll probably take two to three years. Whereas that zoning was taken away by the city in the stroke of a pen. Time will tell who will benefit, who will win and who will lose. And uh, I don't have a crystal ball, but wherever a small minority benefit, there are usually high costs. And what I found in looking at the city's way of assessing the problem is that they did not want to look at the costs. And when you only look at a problem from one side, you have consequences. I am concerned about the future flexibility and use for those transient zone properties. Vacancy rates may change or in a downturn in the economy, you know, not having that flexibility and use is a challenge. And I've talked to a lot of people who have used short term rentals to get through a tough time to help pay their mortgage. Right. I have friends that stayed out of their house for 60 nights a couple of years ago and they'd go camping or do whatever just to pay their bills. Changes in the framework of short-term rental regulations will be implemented later in the year. As to how the regulations will affect homeowners and renters in the future, citizens will have to wait to deliberate on whether their assumptions were correct. For more information on the proposed regulations, visit www.victoria.ca. Thank you to Nancy Payne and Victoria E. Adams for participating. We just heard Victoria versus Vacation Rentals, a story curated by CFUV's production team. If you enjoyed our program, please subscribe, rate, and leave a comment wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to hear more stories like these, head over to cfuvpodcasts.com or soundcloud.com slash cfuv. Our intro is composed and performed by Poddington Bear. The outro for this episode is Gender, written and composed by Painted Fruit. Other music in this episode were performed by Melrose. Our producers for this episode, in no particular order, include myself, Miles Sauer, and Max Collins. This program is created by CFUV's podcasting production team. If you want to be a part of creating high-quality spoken word programming, head to cfuv.ca to find out more. Full Circle is made possible with the generous support from Oak Bay Bicycles and the Community Radio Fund of Canada. I'm your host, Jordan Barron. This is Full Circle. Thanks for listening. Support for Full Circle comes from Oak Bay Bikes. Proudly serving the cyclists among UVic students and faculty since 1963. Visit Oak Bay Bikes in Victoria or on the West Shore or online at oakbaybikes.com.